You may be seated. If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad to have you here. If you would like to know some more um, about Zion Church, uh, you can fill out one of the visitor cards in the pew rack in front of you and just drop that in the offering plate up here um, or in the back. Also, if you'd like to give, um, you can do so in both places or the giving information um, is on page 8 of the worship guide as well. I had the honor this morning of having my good friend, Cam Clausing, with us uh, to preach God's Word for us. Cam is um, probably, uh, he's probably come the longest, to furthest to fill the pulpit. Cam is in Australia. Um, he is a seminary professor there. His specialty is Ermin Bovink. If you are um, of interest to him, we have a Bovink scholar in the building, one of only three in the world. Um, and so, Cam, we're so glad to have you here. Good morning. It is good to be here. If you have your Bible with you or some sort of semblance of a Bible that happens to be on a digital device, uh, open it with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 4 to 7. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And, and raised us up with him and, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might know the, we, uh, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord, and may God add his blessing to it. I'm thankful to Paul and the session for inviting me to come preach. It's always a pleasure to stand behind the sacred desk and uh, deliver God's word to God's people. Uh, it's a, a privilege that I, I do not take lightly. Paul and I, as Paul has said, have been friends for years, uh, and I've really loved what uh, you guys are doing here at Zion, and uh, I've, I've tried to convince Paul to hire me, but then uh, they sent me off to Australia instead. Um, my family and I lived here in Middle Tennessee, and uh, while we lived here in Middle Tennessee, uh, Paul and I got to know each other quite well over lunches at Schaefer's Barbecue. Uh, anytime I said, hey, Paul, let's get together, he said, let's go to Schaefer's, and we would spend countless hours eating barbecue and uh, talking about life and ministry and the Word of God. Now I live on the other side of the world, and uh, Paul and I have no other choice but to eat Schaefer's next time we grab lunch together, I think, in a week or so. So I'm looking forward to that once more. Uh, but I'm thankful to, uh, to be here with you today. Before we look at this passage, let's go before the Lord one more time in prayer, asking him to guide us that we might see wonderful things in this, his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day and we thank you. We thank you that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you made us alive because of your rich mercy and abundant love. We thank you that even now we know that it is you that ministers to us in this service. So we 
look to you to work through your spirit. Open our ears that we might hear your word. Open our hearts that we might receive it. Open our hands that we might respond. For we pray all of this in the matchless name of your son, the risen Lord Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the seed that crushed the serpent's head, and by the power of his spirit who live and reign with you, one God, always and forever. Amen. My, uh, my children are hitting that age in life where we have slowly started to transition away from children's books. Uh, my, my youngest just turned eight last week, uh, and, uh, and they're less interested in reading children's books. My eldest is, uh, is 12, going on 21, and she is interested in reading graphic novels, uh, and our youngest is interested in superhero books. It, uh, it makes me a bit sad moving away from this genre of book. Uh, they're, they're some of my favorite books to read, uh, uh, to, to be completely honest, not only because I can say I read 20 books in a week, but also because there is something about children's books that show really important truths to ourselves and to our children, isn't there? Often the books are about a, a, the love of a parent for their child. I, I can think of a few titles. Jen Harrison's book, As You Are. Um, uh, Alicia Zanoni's book, I Like You. Samantha Sarah Marie, or uh, in, in Australia, one of the great Australian authors, Mem Fox, and, and I, I was looking at her book this week, uh, not this week, actually right before I left, I was looking at her book, Harriet, You'll Drive Me Crazy. I, I love these books because there's something about them that, that emphasize that no matter what the child does, they are loved. Uh, as I was looking through Mem Fox's book the other day, it, it was amazing. It's, it's from the moment that Harriet wakes up, she starts causing trouble. And, and her mother just keeps calmly and quietly correcting her. Uh, like, like a loving mother, she, she, she redirects her energy when things are going awry. Then there's this moment, that, that moment of, of tension where Harriet is playing with the dog and accidentally causes a pillow to explode and feathers fly everywhere. And you can imagine the tension if you're reading this book. If you're a child experiencing this book for the first time, what's going to happen? Is the relationship finally at an end? Harriet's mother doesn't respond in the calmest of ways. In fact, Harriet's mother yells at Harriet. And this just heightens the tension. Is this the end? Is the relationship beyond repair at this moment? But then you read Harriet and her mother apologize to each other, and the relationship is back on track. There's something moving about these short stories for kids. They, they grab the reality of life, don't they? they, they we all have those moments in, in, our, in our own relationships where we wonder, have I done it? Have I, have I finally pushed this relationship beyond repair? Does this person really love me? I'm sure most of you here uh, have had those moments in your life where you've wondered if, if your parents loved you. Most of, for most of us, we'll, we'll quickly answer, of course my parents love me. They're my parents, after all. But I wonder if I asked you the question from a different angle, do, do your parents 
like you what the answer would be. I was talking to a young man the other day, and as I was having a conversation, he said to me, I always knew my dad loved me, but I also always knew that my dad didn't like me. It was a gut punch to hear. When you start thinking about your relationship with your parents, let me ask, do they delight in you? Or perhaps I could ask you the question about your spouse or your friends or at an even deeper level, God. I'm sure if I asked most of you, you would know the right answer. If I asked you, does God love you, you would, you would know the right answer. You, you would know that the answer is yes, God has to love me. That's his job. He's God. However, if I ask you the more pointed question, does God like you? Do you think that God delights in you? I think that there might be a moment of pause. And that's what this text that we have before us gets at today. It is a text that asks and answers that question it's really easy to start, at, uh, to start wondering, does God like us? And when we hear the words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, the, the passage right before the one we're looking at, we, we can actually start to wonder that ourselves. I mean, what does Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 says? It says, even when we were dead in our, tresp- in our transgressions, And then we connect those words to to the words that we get right before that in verses 1 through through 3 here, where, where we read, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and and of the the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the spirit who is now at work in those uh, who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them as at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were, by nature, deserving of wrath. I mean, we read words like that and we start to think about our lives, don't we? We, we start to remember our past. We, we remember the, what we did right before we came to church this morning. We remember our time when we were in high school We think about our marriages. We think about how our marriages may be falling apart because of our own hardness of heart at this moment. We think about a cycle of addiction where we feel the guilt of having addiction, which only leads us more into that addiction. We look at our parenting and we wonder if we can really treat our children any better than our parents treated us. We, we, we look at our past, both the immediate past and, and our, our, our entire past, and we know that it condemns us. And we wonder, how can God love me, let alone like me? How can he delight in me? And, and we've heard over and over again, and we know it to be true, that God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, and with that, we, we imagine this God who is a disapproving father who puts up with us, because he, but, but, but he doesn't really enjoy having us around. He, God is like our parents. He, he has to love me, but there's nothing really all that likable in me. 
And the problem with this estimation is that it is true, but it's only partially true. And the problem with partial truths is that they end up becoming completely false. You see, if we all think about, if all we think about when we think about God is his justice, then yes, there is nothing lovable or even likable in you. However, this passage tells us that we get God the wrong way around if that's how we think about God. If, if, if we only think about God's justice when we come to God, then we're missing who our God is. In fact, the entire meaning of what we are journeying toward in this Advent season is missed if all we think about is Christ coming to fulfill God's justice. You see, in Christ's coming, in his life and death, the, 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 the good news of the gospel is proclaimed. The good news that God's justice is satisfied, but more than just God's justice. It's, it's good news more than just about that. In fact, this is the entire meaning of what we're going toward. You see, what we miss when we understand that the good news that Jesus has come that the Son of God took on flesh, was born a babe, lived a perfect life, and paid the penalty for our sins in our place, that he, that he has dealt with sin once and for all, we misunderstand, we misunderstand what the good news is if we think that it's because God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. The problem isn't God's problem. It isn't because God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. That's, that's not the problem that we're dealing with. The, the, we miss the whole message of the Bible if we think that that is what God, that, that God can't stand to be in the presence of sin. We, we misunderstand who God is if we say that. If, we, if God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then sin actually rules over God and determines where God can and cannot be. If God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then we have to question who this Jesus was that, that was in the presence of sinners all the time. If God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then we need to ask the question, who is this Holy Spirit that indwells sinners and makes them saints? If God can't stand to be in the presence of sin, then the good news of Christmas is all about justice and has nothing to do with restoration. Yet, what we read here in this passage is that this is not the God of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that God so loved that he gave. He gave his son, the, the same son who, was eter who has eternally been at the father's right hand, the same son who is the exact representation of the father, the same son through whom all things in heaven and on earth have been made. This is the good news of the gospel. God so loved that he gave his eternally begotten son. This is the good news of Christmas. You see, what we see here is that God does not give us his son so that we might be lovable. He gives us his son. He, he, he gives us the gift of his son. He gives, he gives us the gift of his spirit 
because he loves us. It's the love of God that gives meaning to everything else that happens from the incarnation to Christ's death on the cross to the resurrection. It's God's love that compels this. It's love that makes Christmas possible. That's what Ephesians 2 verses 4 through 6 are getting at. Look at it again. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Why has God made us alive? Paul tells us. It's because God loves us. God doesn't hate you. God doesn't put up with you. But the manifestation of God's love his delight in you is seen in the work of redemption. Don't mishear me here. God is not blind to our sin. Harriet's mother saw all that Harriet was doing and couldn't just ignore it with a wink and a grin. God is not a cosmic grandfather in the sky who just kind of snickers when you do something bad and goes, oh, Paul will be Paul. God can't be indifferent to our sin because he loves his creation. And our sin perverts and destroys his creation. So so he will deal with it. But we miss the impulse of the gospel. We, We miss the impulse of the gospel if we see our sin as the chief characteristic that God sees in us. We miss the impulse of the gospel if, if, we, if, we, if we miss that. If, if, we, if, we, if we see the, our sin as the chief characteristic that God sees in us, you see, what, God, what, what, what the impulse of the gospel is is God's great love for us, each of us. Each of us individually with our, with our own individuality, our own, our own weird quirks. He is the shepherd that comes after his sheep, and he knows each of them by name. Because of sin, we are in a desperate situation. We are dead. We are unable to change ourselves, Paul tells us here. We are unable to love God or our neighbor as we ought. And and verse 4 opens with those astounding words, but God. But God, we could do nothing to be alive. We could do nothing to raise ourselves from the dead. But God, we were dead. But God, because of his rich mercy and love, made us alive. This, I mean, I often wonder if we're we're too familiar with the gospel to find this to be an amazing statement. This should floor us, that that we were dead but God. In in the same way that that God creates Adam and gives life to dust, he he gives life to you and to me. All of this, not because God is lonely, not because he needs us, but, but because of a fullness of his love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke 
of this type of love. He said, we must discover the power of love, the redemptive power of love. And when we do that, we will make of this old world a new world. For love is the only way. Dr. King's reflection on love is drawing from a wealth of Christian thought here. A wealth surrounding the power of love. Christian thought has, a, has asserted throughout, throughout the uh, generations that, that it's out of love that God creates the world. It, it, it wasn't out of God's lack, but out of an abundance of love that God creates the world. And Jesus himself, in his life, recognizes the power and place of love when he tells us that the greatest commandment is this, to love God first and neighbor second He points to the redemptive power of love when he says that there is no greater love than to lay one's life down for one's friend. You see, there is this power in love. Love has the power to bring together parties that would otherwise have nothing to do with one another. Love has the power to heal deep wounds. Love has the power to overcome pain and hurt. And love can redeem all things. And Jesus comes as as a witness to this redemptive power of love. Even while the ones which he loved rejected and cursed him, he, he loved and he laid down his life. He showed us that the true love, the love of which our human love is only a type and a shadow, does not win reciprocity, does not, does not win the, the reciprocated love of another by showing up and demanding our loyalty. True love wins our love by giving all of ourselves, by giving all of himself for us. And this is the power in love. It's a love that denies itself, a love in which we give all of ourselves to the other. A love in which we are constantly for the other. And this is the first thing Paul tells us God's love does. This is the first thing Paul tells us God's love does for us. It raises the dead. When God's love grabs hold of us, it raises us to new life. However, it would not be enough for God's love just to to put us back at the beginning. It, It would not be enough for God's love just to make us like Adam again before he had sinned. No, no, God's love secures for us eternal life. You see, because of the riches of God's mercy, because of his great love for us, just balancing the scales and letting us start over was not enough for God. No, no, God has to secure for us eternal life. And this is what Paul meant when he, when he said, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. I mean, these are the words of resurrection just as, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so too we have been raised from the dead. This is why 
Paul can say that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we have no hope. The last word is not death. The the last word is not sin. The last word is not fear. The last word is he is risen. And because he is risen, we too also rise. And if Christ uh, did not rise from the dead, we would be put in the same position as Adam. And we could lose it all again with one little misdeed. But God's love for us is so great that he has made sure that that would not happen. Our our spiritual death, our our sin is defeated in Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection conquers the power of sin and death. The, The sin that so easily entangled you yesterday can be overcome by the power of the risen Lord Jesus. Look at how the passage declares that to us. What does it say? It it, it says that even now we have been raised with Christ. Even now we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I, I don't know about you, but I don't often feel like I'm seated with Christ in the heavenlies. I don't know about you, but, but when I'm getting upset with my children, when I'm getting upset with my, with, my, with my parents, I don't feel like I've been raised with Christ. So how can Paul say this? Paul, Paul isn't saying that this is a future reality. He's not saying one day you'll be raised with Christ in the heaven. You'll be raised with Christ and you'll be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He's saying right now you... Who, are, who find themselves in Christ, have been raised with Christ, and you are even now seated with him in the heavenlies. How can that be true? The answer is, is, is because we are children of God here and now. His answer to this is, is because, because even now we have been brought into this family. I mean, the, the entire rest of the book of Ephesians, from, from, the, from verse 1 of chapter 1 all the way to the end of the book, is about being brought into this family and being made children with God, uh, of God. And, and what that does then is, is it totally changes how we imagine reality. So that, so that as we gather together as the people of God, as the family of God... We realize that this is real reality, and we go out into the world to have a new imagination, to imagine what it would be like to have the world look more like heaven than it does like hell. So Paul says, how do you know that you have been raised with Christ and you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies? Well, it means having a new imagination, And that new imagination helping you to understand that you are a child of God here and now, and that changes everything. Yes, there's more glory to come. This isn't the the pinnacle of of what it means to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But here and now, we are children of God, and thus we have been raised with Christ and we are seated with Christ. I don't know about you, but sometimes I find myself relating to God more as, as if I'm the annoying friend who the father has let into the house because he's friends with the true son. Um, 
growing up, I had friends like that, where my parents tolerated having them in the, fa- in the house because I was friends with them. Growing up, I was often that friend as well, um, that parents invited into the house because their children liked me, not because they were necessarily all that fond of me. And I think sometimes we, we, we relate to God that way, as if, as if we're that annoying friend that God is just kind of like, okay, I'm going to let you hang out with Jesus, but only because you like Jesus and Jesus likes you, but I'm kind of like, eh, toward you. Paul says that that's not the reality in which we live here and now. He says God loves us, and he lavishes his love and mercy on us, even when Paul reflects on his previous state, he does so almost as if he can't contain himself here. He he, he starts to reflect on how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, and it's almost as if he can't contain himself, and he has to yell out, grace! He says, don't miss this. Yes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but grace... And then he reminds us, not of our past status, but of our present status. We are not unwanted friends who hang out, who hang out with Jesus, and, and God the Father just lets into the house because we hang out with Jesus. But we have the status of sons. We are beloved children who have been given eternal life, and, and even now we are seated in the heavenlies. Now, now, we could look at all of that and think that's enough. <laughs> God loves us. He lavishes his, his riches, uh, uh, the riches of his mercy and grace upon us. He, he makes us alive. Not only does he make us alive, but he gives us eternal life. We would think that, that that's enough. And in fact, oftentimes when we talk about our salvation, that's, that's all we really talk about, isn't it? Eternal life. But that's not the end of it. Paul says, that's not the end of it. He, he says, no, there's a reason for all of this. Notice what Paul says here. He says, in order that. So why does all of this come before? He says, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. In order that. This is, a, this is what we would call a purpose statement. And what's the purpose? It's an eternal purpose. There's a future in view here. A future which can cause us to live in the present in hope. And what's the future? What is the climax of all that we have been given in Christ through his resurrection? God's mercy makes us alive so that we might put on display for all eternity the extreme and surpassing wealth of God's grace. The words Paul uses here are given to make us wonder. We are talking about incomparable riches of his grace. Incomparable riches. I mean, this, this passage as a whole is, is one of those passages that, that just strikes me with the language. It's, it's, it's language that's just over the top throughout. And Paul ends it with this, with this language of incomparable riches. 
We worship on, on Sunday, the first day of the week, because it reminds us that the king has come and he invites us into his kingdom. We talk about the resurrection of Christ, that it, that it could be easy to make the resurrection into a platitude and, and come up with platitudes about the resurrection. We, we can oftentimes just gloss over it and not really think much about it and, and just move on. But, but what Paul is pointing to here is that the resurrection of Christ, his, his coming, his incarnation, what we celebrate uh, on Christmas Day, his life, death, and resurrection changes everything about our lives. You see, Paul tells us that we are united to Christ in all of his works, and in this passage in particular, in his resurrection, and then in his ascension, and his session at the Father's right hand. Because even now you are made alive because Christ even now is alive. Even now you are seated at the Father's right hand because Christ is seated at the Father's right hand. And Paul tells us now that our, un our union with Christ, the future of this union, is that for the rest of eternity, we will be like a masterpiece that God has painted a masterpiece of God's goodness and his grace. Our union to Christ is our comfort. It's our hope. It's our life. And apart from this union, Paul says, there is no salvation. Rich in mercy, great in love, with which he loved us. Incomparable riches. We, we are all pretty sure that God loves us. He has to love us. He's God. But does he like you? Does God delight in you? God so loved that he gave. He, he doesn't make us alive by force. He, he, he loves us by giving. He loves us by giving himself for us. And this is the mind-blowing thing about the Advent season and then Christmas, isn't it? The mind-blowing thing about this is that God gives all of himself in his Son, who from all eternity is the exact representation of the Father. I love the Nicene Creed, and I love that we confess it. I mean, it's, 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 this, it's this God that, that gives his Son, that, that, that we confess here in this creed, that, that, that he is the only Son of God, that the begotten from, God, from the Father before all ages. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. This is the God that, that gives all of himself for you because God so loves you that he gives all of himself in his son. The one from, who, from, from whom who from eternity was, the, uh, was with the Father and proceeded from the Father. By giving the Son, God puts on, displays, puts on display the riches of his grace, mercy, and love. And, and, and by putting that on display, he, he gets 
us. He gets a people back. He gets each of us individually, and he gets his church as a whole. Because God loves us, we get Christ. We don't get a part of God. We don't get a part of Christ. We get all of him. As his people who have been given his new life, this, this eternal life, we, we can, we, we need to respond in gratitude, which is founded in the dignity that we have in Christ. God is making all things new through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and, and we praise God for this work of renewal. God's love for us is driven by his delight in us and his eternal purposes for us. So, brothers and sisters, know that God not only loves you, but he likes you. He, he likes how he made you. His, he, he is rich in love mercy and grace. And, and even now, he is pouring that out on you because he's all about rescuing you. He's all about renewing you. And this, sisters and brothers, is what the gospel is all about. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what we come to on the Lord's Day to worship and to celebrate. This is our only hope in life and in death. That God so loved that he gave. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to his church. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do come before you thankful for the work that you, with the Son, and the Spirit have done. We, we thank you for the work that you are doing. We thank you for the ways in which you minister to us.